Welcome to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast, where we share tips, information, and success stories about a revolutionary treatment for alcohol use disorder called the Sinclair Method, or TSM. TSM can help most people reduce rather than abstain from alcohol by addressing the root cause of problem drinking, which is inside the brain. I'm your host, Katie Lane, Sinclair Method success story and co-founder of Thrive Alcohol Recovery, where we help you find freedom from problem drinking using this approach so that you can live your best life. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, you guys, it's Katie Lane with Thrive Alcohol Recovery. And today I wanted to take some time to talk with you all about one topic really around why it is that the Sinclair method fails for some people and why does it seem to work for other people? Um, You know, I think if you're watching this, you must be familiar with the Sinclair method and the fact that it has a clinically proven 78% success rate. And I sent an email recently to our subscribers, um, kind of summarizing a conversation I had with a Sinclair Method doctor who's seen over a thousand patients. And he told me, you know, I've seen so many people and I think that if someone really commits to this method and follows it correctly and sees it all the way through, I could have a 98% success rate. And that's not the first time I've heard that from a TSM doctor. In fact, I have an interview on my channel here with Dr. or a physician, Brian Noonan. Brian Noonan, he's a nurse practitioner um, who runs SinclairMethod.org. And he, he thinks as well that it could have a higher success rate than 78%. Um, but, you know, I've been in this field for over five years now, and I see a variety of responses um, that people have on the Sinclair Method. I see people who you know, kind of the the ideal scenario where they start the method and within a few months, they feel like they are cured of alcohol addiction and they kind of just move on with their life. I will say that's more of a rarity, but those are the types of experiences that many of us can idolize and look up to and maybe compare ourselves against. And then there's more of like the middle ground group. I would say I was in that group where, you know, it takes us about nine months to a year to uh, reach extinction and maybe feel like we're reaching our goals on the Sinclair method, whether that's, you know, moderate controlled drinking or going alcohol free. So that, you know, nine month to a year time frame is, is fairly average. But then there's people who can take, you know, longer on the method. Maybe they're more than a year, two years, or even three years into it. And um, though they see results, they feel like, you know, their results aren't as quick as others and they wonder why it's not working as well for them. Um, And then finally, there's people who um, maybe try the Sinclair method a few times and maybe throw in the towel or just feel like this treatment, you know, it's not going to work for them. Or maybe they have to do it a few times until it does finally work for them. There are a number of people I've known um, who that's been been the case for where, you know, they tried it one, two or three times and they don't didn't feel like it was working. But then finally, when they um, did it, you know, another time, it ended up working for them. Um, So on that topic today, I really want to talk about, you know, why is it that the Sinclair method seems to work so well for some people and it doesn't work as well for others, whether it just takes them longer or whether it's somebody who uh, just feels like this method isn't going to work for me. 
And, you know, I, I don't want to talk about the kind of um, physiological issues that can come up whereby, you know, if someone just doesn't tolerate naltrexone, if their body has a severe reaction to it, which is pretty rare, usually I think that's about less than 10% of people, but there are a percentage of people who even a tiny dose of naltrexone, they just can't tolerate it. So that is one group of people that I'm not really talking about today. And we're talking about the people who um, have been on the method and are either seeing really slow results and they're feeling frustrated and they're not sure why it's not working, you know, like it did for this person over here, um, or for people who try it out and just feel like, um, you know, that method wasn't working for me. And granted, you know, this treatment isn't going to work for everyone who tries it out. Um, but I really want to talk about the thing that I have seen over the years, not only through my own personal experience with TSM, but also also, you know, I've probably coached and mentored hundreds of people over the years and seen individual journeys through the Sinclair Method and seen what works and what doesn't work. I've also I have a lot of interviews on my channel here where, you know, I get to hear from people and kind of what their uh, pitfalls were on the method. So the main reason that I think that the Sinclair Method doesn't work for people really has to do with the mindset that people have when they're going into this treatment. And what I mean by that is really their frame of mind that they are approaching this treatment with. Um, and that the mindset we have is really accumulation of the thoughts that we're thinking and the beliefs that we have, whether the beliefs that we have, whether we're aware of those beliefs or not, uh, which then really drive our day-to-day -day action. So um, really, it works in a cycle of we've got these deeply held beliefs that are a product of our past. You know, oftentimes what I've seen is people are holding on to beliefs that they're not even really aware of. Um, and then these beliefs that they have are shaping the thoughts that they are thinking. And then those thoughts then drive their actions and habits on a day to day basis. And so when we're approaching something uh, without the right mindset, most of the time it's not going to work for people. And that could be true with weight loss. That could be true with TSM. That could be true with any change we, we want to make in our life. Even if we have a strategy that is proven to succeed, like the Sinclair method, it's got this clinically proven 78% success rate. It's a very simple protocol, right? You just take naltrexone, wait an hour and drink. Um, of course, that's the Sinclair method protocol. And the other side of it is habit and behavior and lifestyle change, which is really a necessary component of it. But we have this strategy on TSM that again, it's, it's pretty practical. It's pretty simple. But the thing is, is it's not always easy. And even if we have this perfect strategy of how to do something, if we're approaching it with the wrong mindset, meaning we have uh, beliefs that are not helping us on this journey, and we have thoughts that are driving unhelpful habits, then what's going to happen is we're going to really fight the method. We're going to fight the change. And it's going to cause a lot of resistance, internal conflict and turmoil within us. It's going to just make every day feel difficult. Um, oftentimes it leads to people not being totally compliant on the method, meaning they're not taking the medication correctly. Or they just kind of lose their desire to make this change or lose their motivation over time. They might start out really gung-ho and excited and yes, I finally found the answer to my drinking problem and they're like diving into the treatment. Um, and then a few months in, the newness kind of wears off and they kind of fall back and default back on their old habits and behaviors around drinking. And I'm not 
placing judgment or saying this is good or bad or anything. This is just a pattern that I've seen uh, being in this space for as long as I have and just uh, working so, uh, with so many people one-on-one -on -one and just kind of seeing the different patterns uh, people can go through for the through this treatment. The great thing about the Sinclair method is though, even if someone falls off and they stop complying or, you know, they make these mistakes, they can always just get back on. And that's why in the program we offer at Thrive, it's lifetime access. And we've already seen some of our members um, go through these cycles where they kind of fall off after a few months and then they're gone. We can't get in touch with them. And then they come back. They're like, okay, I'm back on it again. And, you know, we're there to support them. And, um, you know, I, I don't know the percentage of people this happens with, but this is, you know, not uncommon for people on the Sinclair method, maybe about 25%, I would say of people kind of go through this experience and that is okay. Um, I also recently sent an email to our subscribers talking about these stages of change where, you know, kind of relapsing or falling out of um, this cycle is actually part of any type of change. You know, like I always equate TSM to weight loss, but many times when people try to lose weight, they often try many times before they're finally able to do it. I know that's been true for me in my life. And so failing or quote unquote, you know, falling off the TSM wagon isn't necessarily a bad thing. And it's actually part of the stages of change process that we all have to go through when we're wanting to make any type of behavior change. And so um, that's why in our program, we're always encouraging people to see their failures uh, or their mistakes as wins, because really we can learn something from them. I know for me, when I would over drink on naltrexone and drink through the medicine and wake up hungover and just feel frustrated, I noticed that my automatic thought was, dang it, Katie, why did you do this? Like, you're not uh, committed enough. What's wrong with you? It was just like the default was for me to beat myself up. Um, but I had to kind of train my mind to uh, focus on what it was that I could learn from it. And this is really going back to, again, the mindset piece. And first of all, you know, I was talking about these beliefs that we have that then lead to our thoughts that then lead to our action. And that's really what a mindset is. Again, it's the deeply held beliefs you have, whether you're aware of them or not, that leads to the thoughts that you're thinking. And then those thoughts drive your actions in the day to day. Uh, I'll just give you guys one from my personal TSM journey. I'm sure many of you can relate. So one of my deeply held beliefs that I wasn't really consciously aware of until I had been on the Sinclair method for a few months, um, it was that I needed alcohol to unwind from the day. Um, I was someone who would, you know, at five o'clock just start opening my bottle of wine, kind of race home from work. Um, before TSM, I remember I'd still have my purse on my shoulder and like be uncorking the bottle just because like I needed to get that first glass of wine in me. Um, it was my way to shut off my brain and kind of transition from the work day into the me time. And so this uh, pattern and habit continued on the Sinclair method for a while. Granted, I um, the longer I was on the method, I wouldn't be so eager to open the bottle of wine. I might put my purse down first and, you know, maybe uh, check the mail or do something else. And then I would kind of allow myself to pour the glass of wine. But what I was noticing was that this habit was still playing out where five o'clock PM equaled me time. It equaled opening a bottle of wine, kind of doing whatever I was going to do, maybe cook dinner, watch TV. Um, but I really was still relying on that wine habitually as my way to transition from the workday and to, to me time, essentially. And so I started to see this habit playing out. I became more aware of it through TSM because I was noticing like, 
I don't really want a drink right now. Like if I were to rate my craving level, um, you know, on a one to five, five being extreme, maybe it's about a two. Uh, but here I was taking naltrexone and drinking anyway. And I would start asking myself, like, why is that happening? What's going on? Um, and what I realized was uh, when I took time to really think about it and meditate on it and just do some self-inquiry was that I really had this belief in me that alcohol was my only way to unwind after work. And that belief caused me to think, oh, it's five o'clock, time for me to take my naltrexone and open a bottle of wine. And then it would lead into my behavior. And so what I recognized was that um, in order to break that habit that was playing out, you know, five o'clock drinking, I had to start to challenge that belief that I had that was causing that habit to play out. Now, had I not become aware of that belief that I had, that this is the root reason of why it is that I keep turning into alcohol, even though I don't really want to, I think that could, habit could have played out a lot longer and it took me a while to break the habit. I'm not saying that once I had that insight and aha moment, it was everything was different. Uh, not at all. But what it was, was that insight really allowed me to open up a door to a different way for me to unwind in the evening. And so I realized, okay, I have this like belief and automatic belief and automatic behavior that's playing out that is causing me to feel like I need to drink every single night at five o'clock, okay? I know that there are people in my life who don't need wine as a coping tool every single night. How do they unwind in the evening? What's their way to kind of uh, transition from the work day to me time? And so that was me beginning the process of identifying that belief that was keeping me stuck in these unhelpful patterns and then find different ways uh, to really challenge the belief and choose different things to believe that would be more helpful toward the person I wanted to become. And so when we have these beliefs, like for me, it was like, I need wine to unwind. Like it's my way to de-stress. It's my me time. It's my coping tool, my comfort blanket. That was my belief I had for 10 years. And so I was like, okay, I guess I need to form a new belief. And what's great about human nature is that we have the choice to choose what we want to believe. But the first step is, and we always tell people in our program this, the first step is really awareness of the belief that you have playing out and also awareness of the fact that you have the power to change that belief. And so um, the process for me was just really recognizing that this belief was not helping me become the person I wanted to be, which was somebody who, um, you know, didn't want to have to open up a bottle of wine every night at five o'clock. I wanted to be free from that. I wanted to have other options of what I could do in the evening and not feel like I was chained to this uh, wine ritual I'd had for so long. And so I started to brainstorm different ways, you know, okay, um, like I said, thinking about other people in my life in different ways that they kind of transition from their work day to the me time, um, starting to form nor new beliefs in my life, like, okay, you know, oftentimes, if we have a belief, and we can turn it into a question, it helps us to um, change that belief. And what I mean by that is, you know, my belief was, okay, I need wine every night at five o'clock to unwind. If I turn that into a question, do I need wine to unwind every night at five o'clock? And if I answered it, honestly, I could say no, I don't. Because like I said, other people in my life, I see them, you know, relax in different ways. I know there's a million and one other ways I can relax. But this is just a default thought pattern 
a habitual pattern that's playing out that I am uh, responding to. And I know that there are different ways for me to unwind in the evening without wine. Now that is just one example from my personal journey on the Sinclair Method. But I think many people go through these um, experiences on the Sinclair Method where we're working so hard to comply with the protocol, to, you know, change our habits, to set goals. Like in our program, we focus on all of those things because the behavioral side is so, so important to um, making this change on the Sinclair Method. But before we can do that, it's really this internal shift that needs to happen with our mindset shift and really getting to the root of the internal beliefs and thoughts that are driving the actions that are playing out. We have to uproot them first from within. Otherwise, it's like a weed that just keeps growing. Like you can keep cutting the weed off, but if you don't get to the root, it, it's just going to keep growing and sprouting up. So you really have to pull it up from the root. And that is really where addressing the mindset and the mindset that you have on your Sinclair Method journey uh, comes in. And I would say that like... Um, that is really like one of the first things people should be doing or could be doing, I should say, as they're getting started on the Sinclair Method. And, and the difficulty is with it is that, you know, really cultivating a healthy mindset is something that it takes mental energy. It takes uh, emotional clarity, mental clarity. And the challenge with that is, is alcohol often can kind of keep us in a fog. And so, Initially, I think starting on TSM, it is difficult to kind of cultivate this type of mindset that is really going to help you um, become aware of the beliefs that are keeping you stuck, become aware of the thought habits that are keeping you stuck. Um, so in the beginning, not to say this is something people have to have figured out right away, um, but something that the longer someone is on the Sinclair Method, and particularly if they're feeling stuck, on the method, if they feel like they're stuck in patterns that are playing out, if they feel like they're disengaging in this protocol really going back to, okay, what's that internal work I need to do to, again, uproot the beliefs and the thoughts that are keeping me stuck in these unhelpful patterns and really eating away at my motivation. And it could be different person to person. You know, I gave my example of, you know, that that belief I had that I needed wine to unwind every night at five o'clock. And um, once I realized that there were other ways for me to, you know, unwind, I started to just try new things little by little. And a, a common way that I advise people I work with is um, don't even tell yourself, you know, you're not going to drink that day. Just tell yourself you're going to try something different before you start drinking, because that's really a baby step, especially for people who are daily drinkers and they struggle with the habitual drinking. Um, Many of my clients who have been on the method for a little while tell me, you know, I'm not even thinking about an alcohol-free day yet, which that's fine. Like, we don't want to force people to have alcohol-free days, especially if they're not ready. But I'm always curious, okay, well, what is it that you're doing that's working up to an alcohol-free day? Because, of course, with the Sinclair Method, eventually, you want to start having alcohol-free days. If you're not having alcohol-free days um, on the Sinclair Method, then that's just another thing that's going to keep you stuck in patterns of habitual drinking, even if you're following the protocol to a T. Um, we talk a lot about that in our program as well, like working up to... Um, how to work up to more alcohol-free days in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming. And again, it can be daunting for people in the beginning, but um, for me, I like I said, my five o'clock wine ritual was something that was very ingrained, and I realized, okay, how can I like subtly shift up this ritual a bit so that I can just try something else, you know? Um, 
if I want to drink tonight, I'm going to let myself drink tonight, but let me try this first. And so when I would get home, instead of immediately having naltrexone, I'd usually take naltrexone when I was at work and kind of drive home. And by the time I was home, it had been an hour or more. But I'm, I started uh, to stop, I stopped taking naltrexone while I was at work. When I got home at five o'clock, I would take my same wine glass and fill it up with a, a cold sparkling water and I'd squeeze a lemon in there. And I would really drink this refreshing, cold, carbonated beverage that I really, really enjoyed. And I remember I started doing that at five o'clock and I was consistent with it. That's something else we always talk about. It's just these tiny things you can do with consistency. And I started... Um, starting having that sparkling water at five o'clock instead. And I, I think, I don't remember it super clearly, but I remember, okay, you know, this was nice. And at six o'clock, I'd end up taking my naltrexone and having my wine, but I just kept doing that at the five o'clock hour. I started replacing that wine ritual at five o'clock with the sparkling water. There were other things I did too, like aromatherapy and hot showers and things like that. But what happened over time is I noticed that my brain started to crave the sparkling water instead of the wine. It would be five o'clock and instead of of my brain saying, oh, glass of red wine, it would think, oh, I want a cold, refreshing, sparkling water. And this was really the starting point for me to having more alcohol-free days and not being stuck in that pattern of just five o'clock equals wine because I had gotten to the core belief that was driving that behavior and, and driving that thought habit and that uh, physical habit that was playing out um, and started to challenge that belief. And it really opened up an opportunity for me to think, okay, I believe that I need wine to unwind in the evening, but let me brainstorm a bunch of other ways that I can unwind uh, without wine. And so sparkling water, aromatherapy, hot baths, walks, you know, all of these different ways that we can do it. And just to be honest, like, you know, these things are not going to give you the quick off switch that naltrexone brings or that quick, like, turn off your brain. You know, it's not going to have that instant gratification, which that is another um, habit that we talk about in one of our courses is that habit of um, really instant gratification and that habit of impulsivity that we're stuck in when we have alcohol use disorder. We, I know for me, I really lacked self-control. Like as soon as I had a craving, it was like, I got to have it right now. And that's chaotic to live that way, to be honest. When you um, don't have that control over yourself, it can be just a a really kind of a depressing and, and unhealthy cycle to be stuck in, but it's a process of getting back to, you know, feeling like you're in control with alcohol, but it really does. Um, it starts with understanding these underlying beliefs that are really driving the, um, again, the, the, the habitual thoughts and the habitual patterns that are playing out. So that is really why I wanted to talk about, you know, the mindset piece. I think for me, you know, that was just one example. There are a million other examples I could give, especially from my own personal journey. But I see people on the Sinclair Method have these different beliefs that are really driving their relationship with alcohol, even if they're practicing the Sinclair Method to a T and they're doing everything really well, they're complying, you know, they're doing all of the steps. If they've got these underlying beliefs, you know, like, oh, um, my job makes me, you know, really stressed out, so I need alcohol to cope with that. Or um, I've drank for the past 20 years every single day. I don't know who I am without alcohol. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm terrified of letting it go. 
Um, you know, what if this method doesn't work for me? Uh, then I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board. Like, I don't want to have to fail at this. Or what if this method does work for me? And then I have this new level of responsibility I have to take on in my life because I can no longer fall back on the excuse of being hungover or intoxicated. And I'm, I'm sharing these as things that were really all uh, processes I had to go through of these um, underlying beliefs and fears and things that I had that could have and did for a period of time kind of keep me stuck on the Sinclair method. Um, I think when we can expose those things, you know, just putting a light on them, shedding a light on them and really becoming aware of them, um, it can help us to understand the things that are keeping us stuck. And the way that we can begin to really understand the unhelpful beliefs that we have that are playing out is really to notice the thought patterns that we are having. Because as I said, the beliefs that we have are really shaping our thoughts within our, which then are shaping our behaviors. So if you notice reoccurring thoughts you're having, like, you know, oh, my work stresses me out. I, I need alcohol to cope with it. You know, that's something maybe you should write down and try to understand the, you know, the core belief that's operating beneath that. What's what's driving that? You know, is it is it that alcohol is the only way for you to cope with stress? Maybe that is, you know, for me, it certainly was. I didn't know any other way to cope other than alcohol. And then when I was really stressed, it would be whiskey. Like I honestly had to um, learn different ways to to teach myself to cope truly. And I often, you know, use the analogy of it was like my coping muscle uh, through 10 years of AUD had really become atrophied, like it was non-existent. And through the Sinclair method, I had to strengthen that muscle again over time. And, you know, anyone here knows if you go to the gym and you lift weights once, you're probably going to be sore afterward and you're probably not going to see any difference in your muscle tone at all. Um, you have to go back over and over and over again and slowly you start to grow bigger muscles and see more muscle tone. And that's the exact same thing that's true with learning to cope differently on, on the Sinclair method. We've got to really practice um, new ways to cope, get through the discomfort of it because it's going to be uncomfortable. I often tell people, you know, I just remember the first time so vividly that I felt genuine anger and I didn't reach for alcohol. I just remember I thought I was going to have a panic attack, like blood was just flowing through my body. I was like, this is too much. Like this is overwhelming uh, because I hadn't really felt genuine anger without numbing out on alcohol uh, for a long, long time. And so it was very overwhelming. But by the time I got through it, um, it was like the, the best high in the world. Like no alcohol buzz can replace that because I was like, oh my gosh, I got through it. I didn't rely on alcohol. I feel better now. Like that is so cool. And in the recovery world, we call that recovery capital and nobody can take that away from you. That is capital that you'll, you're building up in yourself and really becoming more resilient and reliant upon yourself. And this is all part of the process. You know, it takes, it takes time. Um, but in order to even be willing enough to um, engage in this process and do the things that are necessary, do the inner work that's necessary and follow the protocol correctly and change behaviors in a way that is sustainable, in order to even do all of this and, and really fully commit to the Sinclair Method with both feet in, not one foot in, one foot out, you know, one foot in your old life, one foot in your new life that's going to keep you stuck and it's just going to divide you and you're going to feel frustrated and you may stop being compliant. Um, again, it's all a learning experience, but just to be aware, you know, in order to do all of 
all of these things in order to really jump into the the protocol and see it all the way through and see yourself become the person that you know deep down that you can become that you genuinely want to become and that alcohol is inhibited for years or decades like we all have that person inside of us that we've kind of um maybe uh, let die out a little bit maybe we've kind of just tried to forget about because alcohol has taken front and center in our life um in order to become that person it really starts with the right mindset and getting to a place where um you are committed to your change no matter what like no matter what it's going to take no matter how long it's going to take you are in it for the long haul and there's so many different um aspects to this to really the journey of changing our relationship with alcohol that i think sometimes people can um neglect and not even that they're doing it intentionally i think many people myself included we just don't always realize how much our identity and who we are and our day-to-day thoughts and our day-to-day beliefs and our actions is completely intertwined with alcohol and alcohol's role in our life and if we just approach the sinclair method like okay i'm gonna pop my pill and wait an hour and just kind of kick back and see how it works you might see some progress, but again, if your daily thoughts, if your beliefs, if who you are as a person is intertwined and married to alcohol and alcohol's role in your life, it's going to be a battle because it's not something that your habits are going to want to let go of easily. It's not something your identity is going to want want to let go of easily. Um, it's not something that even how others see you, you know, it's not going to be something that is just going to shut off, uh, shut off of you really easily because it's so intertwined with, with who you are and who, what you do each and every day. You know, I always tell the example of, uh, when I started the Sinclair method, um, I was drinking a lot for 10 years and it was really wearing on me a lot. But even when I started this treatment, I was like, I drink too much alcohol. This pill is going to help me drink less. Like, great. That was really the mindset I had going into it. But what happened a few months in was that it was working. The medicine was causing me to drink less. But what happened was all of these things started to surface in my life that I had really been kind of um, escaping with alcohol, you know, just a couple of examples. Um, I was working at a job that I really hated that was a very toxic work environment. And uh, I would see that even though I didn't feel like drinking, I would go home and start drinking every night because I hated that job and I was using alcohol as a way to cope with it. Um, I also realized, you know, memories and things from my past really started to surface that I, I think I'd been kind of numbing out with alcohol for a long time. And I really had to plug in to support. I was seeing a therapist and just trying to like heal some of these things that I weren't even, um, I wasn't even aware of that were there. And I started to feel all of these emotions. I mentioned the example with the anger and, you know, just all of these things kind of surfacing all at once. And it was a little bit overwhelming. And um, I think at that time, like there was definitely a period of time for me where I was drinking habitually on the Sinclair method drinking through the medication sometimes, uh, drinking to cope, even though I didn't really feel like drinking because the medication was working. Um, but I think if we are not approaching TSM, you know, understanding these things that are often a part of changing our relationship with alcohol, you know, it's really changing our, our identity and how we relate to alcohol and how we relate to life and how we relate to ourselves. Um, it's a really, 
<laughs> it's a complex relationship we have with alcohol, to be honest. And I think, you know, we call it a relationship with alcohol for a reason, because it feels like such an intimate relationship we have with this substance. And as we are, you know, letting go of alcohol as we've known it, um, a lot of this stuff can come up. And if we are not approaching it with um, the right support system, the right uh, mindset, the right expectations, um, it's going to throw us, it's going to throw us for a loop, I think. And I think that's sometimes where people get started on the method and super gung ho, and then they kind of just fall off the wagon for a bit because it's like, whoa, this is too much, or this medication works too well, or I'm not ready to let go of alcohol in the way that I had known it. Like I still really want it as that comfort blanket and coping tool or numbing agent and things like that. And so um, there's a lot to this process, even though the Sinclair method protocol is quite simple, you know, there's not a lot to that piece of it. There's a lot to it um, with regards to just the ripple effect of what happens as we lose interest in alcohol and as we gradually drink less alcohol, especially if we're someone who um, our identities have been intertwined with alcohol and who we are and what we do in our day-to-day -day lives have been intertwined with alcohol for years or decades. And that's why I like in our program to, you know, and I think this is important for anyone using the Sinclair method, um, we have so many course videos that deal with these aspects of changing our relationship with alcohol in a way that is encompassing all of these different areas of our life that change with it, you know, changing your identity, changing your beliefs about alcohol. I know sometimes people are um, starting this treatment and there's a lot of guilt around even being able to drink on TSM because maybe they've come from an abstinence-based background or maybe their families or their doctors want them to be sober, but they're trying to drink on this protocol and understand like, is this bad? Is this good? Um, also, you know, for people to really understand why it is they want to make this change. Are they really doing it for themselves? And if they are, then why? What are all the reasons why they want to make this change? I know for me, my list just grew and grew and grew as far as why I wanted to make this change. I just kept adding to it over and over again and reminding myself of it over and over again because it's a long-term treatment protocol and it's inevitable that our motivation is going to come and go. You know, it's not always going to be there. And are we going to be willing to kind of, you know, stick to the protocol and do what we need to do even when we have no motivation? Um, and that, you know, when you can go to a place where you really are defining your why of why you want to make this change and really getting in touch with yourself and, and really getting to know why you deep down want this change, um, that's something that can help you stay committed on the good days and the bad days. Um, and also uh, another course we have, which we talk a lot about in our program is, you know, that vision for your future when you have your ideal relationship with alcohol and what that looks like and how you will feel and who you will be and what your loved ones will say about you. Um, and really viscerally feeling that day in and day out or as often as you can, because if you don't have something pulling you to toward your future um, through the Sinclair method, then what's the point, to be honest? And I've met with clients who um, are retired and they developed alcohol use disorder later in life out of boredom in retirement. And they don't really have anything in their life to look forward to. And so it's like, well, I just want to drink every day. I don't have anything else going on. And no matter what someone's age, you know, there can be a, a purpose and a passion and a hobby and things that they can plug into and really um, live their life for. But if we don't have... Um, if we don't have something that's meaningful and that's exciting and that we're looking forward to in our future, when we no longer experience alcohol use disorder, again, we're just going to stay stuck in these habitual patterns. Um, 
and really can can feel frustrated on the method or even throw in the towel. But there's so much more I could say here, but I think I'll wrap up the video for today. Again, just really wanted to talk about, you know, the reasons why the Sinclair method doesn't work as well or as quickly for some people. And again, um, you know, medication tolerance and response aside, I think it really goes back to the mindset somebody has. And as cliche as it sounds, you know, I talked a lot about how the mindset really is these underlying beliefs we have, which then shape our thoughts and our actions. But if if your core belief is not that you can do this for yourself, that you want this for yourself no matter what, if you don't have that fundamental belief operating inside of you, then it's going to be a battle to get through the Sinclair method. And I think, you know, even if someone is practicing TSM today, or if you're considering it or you're struggling wherever you're at, I think it's so important to get back to the basics of understanding, like, do I really want this for myself? And if I don't, uh, why not? And if I do, why do I want it for, the, for, for myself? And really taking time to do that internal work and being aware of the fact that it's complicated with alcohol because it it numbs us to ourselves and to our emotions. It gives us a brain fog. We are not thinking clearly. Um, it impairs our brain in that, you know, there's uh, nutritional def deficiencies and vitamin deficiencies and negative impacts on our brain function that happen when we drink. So it's not like, you know, people are approaching this in peak health. Usually if we've been drinking for years or decades, alcohol's taken a number on our um, physical health, emotional health, mental health, spiritual health, all of these different things. And so, you know, I don't expect someone to just be like all Tony Robbins, you know, oh, I've got this figured out. Yes, I'm going to do it, you know, on day one. Um, but really understanding that, you know, believing in yourself and believing that you can do this is like the core factor that's going to shape your success on this method. Um, that is going to be the foundation for you to be able to have perseverance and see it all the way through. And again, you know, getting excited about the future of what life is going to look like when this is no longer issue, an issue for you and really understanding all of the reasons why you want to make this change and um, revisiting them every day so that they are really deeply seated within you of, um, you know, your your reason why you want to do this. Because if if that stuff is missing, if you're not approaching this uh, protocol with um, all of these different components of, of you know, your mindset in, in a healthy place or in, even in a place that's just, you know, looking toward where you want to go, it can be a struggle and it can just be an uphill battle, even with the tool of naltrexone and the Sinclair method, even with the perfect strategy. Um, if you don't have the right mindset and the right belief system, it's going to be a battle. And like, I keep quite equating it to weight loss, but it's true in that case as well. If someone has the perfect diet that they know if they follow this to the T, they're going to lose weight. Um, but it doesn't work, you know, it won't work if they don't have the right mindset and their own internal desire and motivation to make the change, a real burning desire within themselves to make this change. So, um, I hope that helps. That's honestly why we created our program at Thrive was to really help people be in the right mindset on a day-to-day -day basis through the Sinclair method. You know, it's a long-term journey. Even for people who uh, get through it really quickly, it still takes several months. And that's more of the rarity, I would say. I think for most people, it's about nine months to a year. 
And so if you're on this journey and you're doing it by yourself and you don't have people supporting you, reminding you of like, okay, this is where you need to focus this week. Or, hey, it's okay if that happened. How are you going to pick yourself back up? And, hey, what are you thinking about that's driving this pattern? Or why is this pattern playing out? Or what's what's going well on the Sinclair method? You know, um, if you don't have that support, it can honestly be... Uh, a lonely journey. It can take longer than needed because you're just kind of in the the territory of like guessing what to do and you know not knowing if this is a, a placebo effect or is this really the medication working or what else can I do to optimize my journey or hey you know this is a bit overwhelming like what's the bare minimum I can do to continue to see results you know all of these things that um, really contribute to your success on the treatment that is why we built the program and one of the biggest things I saw because I was a coach or I've been a coach I'm still a coach but I've been a Sinclair Method coach for over four years now um, and well before we started the program and what I saw meeting with people is that, um, you know, I, I would always have to send them to different places and resources like, oh, go check out this video, go read this blog, uh, look at this resource. I was always just sending people in all of these different places to really help them have more of a holistic, comprehensive Sinclair Method journey. And I was like, ah, I just want everything to be in one place so that like, they have everything that they need right at their fingertips. It's not like they have to go out and search it because they're already doing enough by following the protocol. Like, you know, to have to find and search for answers and still not be totally confident that you're finding the right one. Like, that's just more work that I think is not necessary and can be unhelpful through this process. So that was like a big vision behind creating our program is like everything somebody needs for the Sinclair Method is in one place for as long as they need it. And that includes lifetime access to coaches as well, including myself, where people are like, our members are messaging me and our other coaches like, hey, this happened. Like, is that normal? Or what can I do? Or hey, I fell off the wagon. How do I get back on track? Like, just to have that, um, that support there uh, for the long haul, for as long as you need it, I think can be really uh, fundamental to someone's success on the Sinclair method. Because even though, like I said, the protocol is really simple, just take this silly little pill before you drink. Like, you know, it's really changing a lot about how we relate to alcohol and how we experience alcohol. And there's a reason some people struggle with compliance. Um, you know, and a lot of it, like I said, goes back to that mindset piece and understanding, you know, are you in a a mindset as you embark on your Sinclair method journey, or maybe you're in the middle of it, are you in a mindset that is helping you um, get to where you want to go? And if not, understanding how you can you can approach the method with a, a mindset that's going to be, you know, helpful to your success, because, you know, you started this method for a reason. Um, something inside of you wanted to see this change. Something inside of you is sick and tired of hangovers and being chained to alcohol and feeling like it's got all this control in your life. Um, you know, I know that was me. I was just so tired of uh, feeling like I, I lacked control in this area. I could just see how alcohol was just preventing me from doing all of these things I wanted to do in my life. And I should say excessive alcohol, the the binge drinking, the daily heavy drinking was just such a, a block for me and all of these things that I wanted to do in my life. And I, I can see how people, especially if they've had uh, AUD longer than I did, you know, I was about 10 years with people who've been at it for 20 years. You know, I, I could see that I was kind of like, forgetting the dreams that I had and the desires and the goals and the personal ambitions, I could see that I was just like putting those things aside and okay, you know, yeah, I'll just keep drinking, you know, kind of forgetting about them um, and not really being hungry to live my best life. We only have one life to live and it's like time goes by so quickly and how much 
more time do we want to spend with alcohol as a ball and chain, you know, or, or are we ready to, you know, nip it in the bud and get this over with in the next six to 12 months so that we can, um, chase after the life that is ahead of us when this is no longer an issue for us anymore. And I was just talking with our coach Samara, but she was talking about how she's been extinct for, I think a couple of years now, you know, um, she still drinks socially and on occasion, but she reached extinction a while ago. And she was like, man, there is so much personal development that comes after extinction. Like extinction is just the beginning. And I think that is so true. Like once you're extinct from this problem and you truly feel free from it, it's like life, anything is possible. Life is your oyster. There's just like so many different things that you can do. And, and you know, the things that you maybe always dreamed of that you always wanted to do, maybe even since you were a kid, um, maybe it's silly things like, you know, maybe volunteering or going on these trips or being able to take long walks every day or spend more time with your grandkids or be more present with your friends, um, maybe lose weight. You know, there's all of these things that deep down we want to do that when we've been drinking over a long period of time, we kind of forget about them because alcohol takes precedence in our life. I know for me, I felt like alcohol was my purpose. It really was. I, I remember going through this protocol and I tried to quit drinking a bunch of times before the Sinclair method. And I like, I would try to like find hobbies because I was like, I don't know what to do. Um, you know, without alcohol, it's like what I do every day. And so like I would buy a sewing machine and start sewing, which I still enjoy to do on occasion. Um, but it's like, I had to find out these different hobbies um, that I like to do without drinking. I was like, I don't even know what I like to do. Um, and it was really this process of self-discovery and rediscovery and being willing to try new things and maybe fail at them or suck at them. Um, but just keep looking for different things that I could plug into. Because for me, alcohol was my purpose. It's what I did every night for 10 years. It's what I did every weekend for 10 years. Um... I would do other things, sure, you know, but I had to have alcohol in the mix. Like I didn't want to do something unless we'd be drinking. And so it's truly though, you know, going through this process, it's such a, a beautiful process of self-rediscovery and really getting back in touch with the truth of who you are. And, you know, for me, it was like going back to things that like, my because I started drinking a lot in my early 20s so it was like what did I like to do you know before that when I was like my late teens or early 20s before I started drinking what what like what did I enjoy and I would pick up there and just start to do these silly things like take myself out for an ice cream cone or go ride my bike or uh, watch a funny movie you know I think one of the things that was so um eye-opening for me through this treatment protocol was uh, how alcohol really numbs us out from the simple joys of life, that life is full, so full of these simple pleasures, these simple joys that we can really get so much out of. But when, when I was numbed constantly with alcohol all of the time, I was completely ignoring them. I was not perceiving them because I feel like alcohol really blocked my joy. And there's a great, great quote by Brené Brown where she says something like, you cannot selectively numb emotions. When you numb the negative emotions, you automatically numb the positive ones as well. She says something like that. And that was so true for me. Like I was drinking to cope with stress and, you know, I was also drinking to party and have fun, but I, I was just drinking every day. But I, what I realized was that alcohol was really numbing me from noticing these simple pleasures and simple joys of life. And desensitizing me to them and so the longer I was on the Sinclair method these simple joys like okay I'm gonna walk downtown and go get an ice cream cone and just like walk around like 
when I was drinking, I'm like, okay, can we do that? And like maybe get an alcoholic ice cream cone or something, you know, like alcohol always had to be front and center. But through the Sinclair method and not really desiring alcohol, but also having to find these other ways to spend my time, it was like, wow, this is so fun to do these silly little things like go out and get an ice cream or watch a movie or enjoy a cup of tea. You know, there's so many so many simple joys and sweetness. Life is so sweet when we can become more sensitive to our environment. And that comes as we drink less alcohol. And, you know, something else that's coming to mind was uh, just, uh, I have 10 nieces and nephews and like going to their birthday parties and a lot of people in my family drink a lot. And so their birthday parties would always just be like all the adults drinking and the kids playing. And I wouldn't really be paying attention to the kids or what they were doing or the gifts they were opening. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just thinking about where's the alcohol. And I just remember so much like, um, going to a birthday party of my nephew the first time on the Sinclair method. And it's like, alcohol was like, third or fourth on the list like it wasn't even like front and center I was like more concerned with like him opening his toys and what he was doing and spending time with him and taking pictures of him and that was such a cool experience to not feel like alcohol was the priority it was like so precious to have that time with my nephew and you know these are all things that I think it's a process of discovery as we go through the Sinclair method um of really becoming more sensitized to our environment and really getting back in touch with who we really are and these beautiful things that are a part of our day-to-day -day life but for so long alcohol can numb us from those things and and block them out um so I think that's all from me. And guys, um, if you want to learn more about the alcohol freedom program that we offer for the Sinclair Method, check out um, the link below. Um, you have lifetime access to uh, over 40 video courses, uh, coaching support. We've got live groups, workshops. There's so much happening over there to really support your success on the Sinclair Method and the community. Oh my gosh. Our community is so amazing. Like the people in there are constantly cheering each other on, rooting each other on. I noticed on our live group support calls, like we have several each week and we really just are starting to feel like a family. Like people are looking out for each other and encouraging one another. And it's just so amazing to see that this is taking on a, a life of its own. And it's really what I was hungry for and what I was looking for on my Sinclair Method journey and over the years being a coach as well. So Thanks guys so much. If you watched this whole video, wow. Thank you so much for sticking around. Um, please like if you found this helpful. Would love to hear from you in the comments as well, just how your Sinclair Method journey is going. Um, I'll talk to you guys again soon. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast. For additional Sinclair Method resources and support, please check out the information in our show notes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.